Jesus, only Jesus, I stand amazed. Amen? Amen. Jesus, only Jesus. Quite a few years ago, my family, you know my history a little bit, we moved from Alaska to Florida, all in a matter of a few weeks, and the Lord took my family as a, as a young high school boy to live in southwest Florida, which was very close to the Everglades, and so I grew up with the opportunity to be in the Everglades and do what you do in the Everglades. Everybody likes alligators in Michigan, right? Um, everybody enjoys the snakes and everything that goes along with. There's lots of water in the Everglades, but there's also um, a degree of wilderness or woods that you can um, go back in and, and camp and so forth. But um, as I returned after college to that same area, I was working in a Christian school there, and one of the things that we would do each year, we would take the kids on a wilderness experience, and we would take them to North Carolina. But we thought, myself and another teacher said, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea if we did a practice trip? And we took the students out into the Everglades. Now, that sounds like a positive, good idea, right? Take a bunch of eighth graders, um, put packs weighing 35 pounds or more on their backs, and um, the water wasn't safe to drink there in the glaze, and so all the water that they would need for the time that we were there had to be also packed in. We said, oh, that'd be a great idea. And so we planned to do that, and we did do that. Packed the students in vans, took them down to the Everglades Park, walked in a few miles, found our campsite, and stayed for the night. It was great. Except there's a lot of mosquitoes in the Everlades. I'd, if you've experienced uh, northern Michigan when the black flies are out, it was that times 10. Um, mosquitoes were every, everywhere. Matter of fact, I went to bed that night with the buzzing of mosquitoes I thought that were outside of my tent were actually inside of the tent um, there alone. But while we were there and we were, got to the campsite and we had told the kids, we only have a certain amount of water. Therefore... We need to conserve it. And I learned that that was probably the worst thing that I could have said, is to tell somebody that we don't have enough. And that you probably ought to take it easy because that automatically, myself included, made me really, really thirsty. I remember going to bed that night in this tent with the mosquitoes flying around saying, wow, I could I am so thirsty, I could get up and drink the water I told them not to drink. I was thirsty. We stayed the night. I couldn't wait to get the kids out of the Everglades, get myself out of the Everglades. We stopped at the first convenience store we had and bought soda and chips. But um, <laughs> thirsty. As we approach our topic of worship or this topic of worship this morning. Our text talks a lot about water. But more specifically, it talks about not the physical water like I just discussed with you, but a living water. Water that if you drink, the text says you will not thirst again because it will well up in you unto eternal life. Water that will, when, when truly received, 
will well up in your soul and its only response is to cry out with your life to the one who gave it to you. Been in our series about the church and we've learned that the church simply means the called out ones. And we are called out unto him, but we are called out also to be a worshiping people. To be a worshiping people. So I prepared and thought about our time together. I, I felt like if we're going to talk about the topic of worship, that I needed to put some things in here where you participated with me. Okay? So I'm going to do that right now. Is that okay? And I know there's some that are joining us online. You get to participate at home as well. Um, but I want us to do this. I want us to stand this morning. Just go ahead and stand up. Uh, the psalmist wrote a lot about worship. And I would like us to start our time this morning. He describes, or we see his heart of worship in the few verses that we're going to read here together this morning. But I want us to read them together. And I know that can be awkward, right? Somebody might hear me talk. It's okay. I, I like to take some time and just say, introduce yourself to the person next to you. But um, it's okay. If you're at home and you're alone, you get to hear yourself talk. All right? But we're going to read this together, and I want you to see the, the psalmist's heart for worship. We find this, these verses out of Psalm 63, and the psalmist writes, and we're going to read together this psalm. So you read with me, and um, we'll speak up. Now, if you don't read out loud, I'll stop, and we'll start again, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm paying attention, okay? Here we go. Oh, God, you are my God earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary and I behold your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Good job. I didn't have to stop. You can be seated. All right. Have a seat. Because your steadfast love is better than what, church? Better than life. Because of that, my lips will praise you. As we consider our topic of worship this morning, I want you to consider this question. I won't repeat it again in our, in our time together, but I want you to think about it as it relates to your own life. And here's the question. What in my life could be defined as authentic worship? What in my life could be defined as authentic worship? Now, if you're going to answer that question, I think it's important, and, it, and we will repeat this that I'm going to share with you in a moment many times throughout our time together, but it's important that you have a definition, a, a clear definition of what worship is. Now, if I was to ask each one of you, define worship for me, you would come up with a, a definition, and, and, and I'm sure many of you would come up with a great definition. I found one um, that was actually written by John MacArthur, and I liked it because it, it goes along nicely with our text this morning. But you will see this as I go through our, as we go through our time together this morning, and we will repeat it. And as we've just done, I'm going to ask you to read it 
with me, but let me read it to you first. Worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that he is. Worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that he is. So participate with me. Let's read it together. Worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that he is. All that we are rightly, responding rightly to all that he is. Now, as we look at our text this morning, and many of you are familiar with the text that we'll look at. Matter of fact, I want to invite you at at this time to go ahead and turn there to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and we'll look at verse 3 here and just begin at verse 3 in just a moment. But you're familiar a little bit, I think, with the context and with the story that there was an appointment that that Jesus had in Samaria, and he met a, a Samaritan woman at the well. And during their time together, he not only shared himself, she realized her sin and recognized him as Messiah, but she also, they also had a conversation about worship. But this woman had a, a, a difficult past. And I think as we approach the text, there's some cautions in our own mind that we need to have. And I want to share a few cautions for you to consider before we read the text this morning. When we look at a text like this, and we look at a gal like this, sometimes it's easy to exalt our own selves in our own minds when we compare ourselves to others. In other words, I'm not like that. My heart's not that way. I haven't had those experiences in my life. But we tend to do that, and I caution you to not do that today. Be honest as you answer the question about worship. I've shared with you in the past, I was saved as a young boy. And sometimes I, you're saved young, you don't have the same life experience that, that others may have had if they were saved later in life. But if I understand the scripture right, when God says we all have sinned, and when he says there are none righteous, no, not one, it's true. Totally lost means what? Totally lost. Totally lost means totally lost. We tend to think of ourselves a little bit closer to the pinnacle, like we've arrived closer to the pinnacle than we really are. Here's the last caution I want to give to you. It's easy, it's easy to present yourself authentically worshiping, or you might say it this way, it's easy to give the perception of authentic worship when in fact that's not going on in your heart and on your mind. So think about those cautions and we're going to look at the text. With that clear definition of worship and these cautions, let's consider what the Lord has for us this morning. We start in John chapter 4. You can follow along as, as I read. Um, and you'll notice that in the, the text as we read through it, there's a few things that I've highlighted that we'll kind of focus on. So as you Follow along. No, we'll come back to those things. He left Judea, and he departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, 
it was about the sixth hour. By the way, when we hear sixth hour, um, we think differently than what the text means. Sixth hour here simply means around noon or lunchtime at the hot part of the day. A woman from Samaria came to, the, to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me some drink. Now, as we consider the text, we must first see this truth. And I, I don't want you to miss it, that, that worship, true worship, springs forth from true redemption. Without redemption, there's not true worship. True worship springs forth from true redemption. You'll notice, and I underlined it there in the text, our text starts off with Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, the, the Greek word for had there or had to is they. And the word simply means this, which means it was necessary that he did that, and it was binding that he did that. It was necessary and binding. Now, I think the question then becomes, why? Why was it necessary that he went through Samaria? Was it the best way? And, and in a lot of ways, it was. If you look at the map, um, he was going from the north to the south. Um, Samaria was in the middle there of the, the red and the green lines, that was Samaria, and he's moving through there. And so if you look at that, it was probably the most direct route. But if you know the story or the history that the Jews had with the Samaritans, they often didn't go that way because of their disdain or this dislike for each other. The Jews would either go to the, to the west on the red line there, go cross the river, go north, cross it again, and back to their destination. Or they would go to the east, up the green line, get to their destination that way. Why did they dislike or have disdain for each other? Well, there's really lots of reasons. Um, the Samaritans were, were people who had, were Jews that had intermarried with those that weren't Jews. And um, so there was kind of a, a racial reason why they didn't like each other. Um, if you remember back to uh, the time when Nehemiah was building the wall, um, the Samaritans were the ones that put some blocks to try to stop them. And so there was a kind of a social justice or political reason they didn't like. There was a religious reason, and you'll see it in the text this morning. The, the Samaritans had, because of their belief only in the first five books of the Old Testament, they didn't accept the whole Old Testament um, they believed that they should worship at Mount Gerizim. It was a place where significant things had happened um, there in the, the history of Israel. But, and then the Jews felt like they should worship in Jerusalem according to where they believed the Scripture said. And so that caused some animosity. And I think there was some frustration too, something I learned a little bit in that this, this time as I prepared, was that there were sanctuary cities, but they were, in a sense, being abused. And sometimes the, the Jewish criminals would go um, to Samaria to get away from justice. And so that was a point of frustration as well. But I, I believe, and we're gonna, I'm going to show you why, I believe that the text tells us that we're, these were really not the reasons why Jesus had to go through 
Samaritan or Samaria. He had to. John, John frequently used this same word day in other places in his gospel to convey or to say um, that Christ had a mission. He was about all about carrying out or focused on carrying out the will of the Father. And so I want to take us and look at a few of those examples where John in his gospel used the same word to show his mission. You're familiar with this um, verse. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so what must the Son of Man be lifted up? It's showing and signifying what he came to do. Another place in the, in the gospel of John uh, this is, I'm dropping in the middle of the story here, but this is when uh, the disciples in Christ saw a blind person and the disciples asked, why is he blind? Did he do something wrong or his parents do and do something wrong? And the answer was neither, but he, I'm using this for my glory. Um, but Jesus said at that time, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one will work. And then again at the end of John it says for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That he must rise from the dead. And as we come to our text, same word and he had to pass through Samaria. And I, I believe that it's clear that, that we are seeing here today in our text the divine appointment. It was the completion of of the mission that was assigned, if you will, one that was on the calendar before the calendar existed, before the world existed even. It was an appointment for redemption, one that was designed to seek and to save that which was lost, to take the gospel, to show, show this lady her sin, and to show her that he was the Messiah. That was... The mission, but also, and I don't want you to miss this, it's important to our time together this morning. Later in the passage, not only was he seeking to save that which was lost, but the Father is also seeking people to worship him. The Father was seeking people to worship him. We are saved to become worshipers, to bring glory to the one who died for us, true worship only flows out of this miraculous redemption. True worship only flows out of this miraculous redemption. I think Paul had this in mind a little bit so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, why? Might be to the praise of his glory. Or later in the same epistle, in his prayer for the church there, he said, to him be glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever and ever, amen. Certainly we have been given a miraculous blessing when we trusted Christ by his grace. We were saved from our sin and given eternal life. We have been granted eternal life, and in the here, but yet in the here and now, we live a life and a life more abundant as well. However, I want you to see this this morning. However, we are redeemed to bring glory and praise to his name. So it brings us back to our definition of worship. Read along with me. Worship is all that we are 
reacting rightly to all that he is. All that we are reacting rightly to all that he is. We are a worshiping people. We are a living sacrifice. A sacrifice, in order to be a sacrifice, has to give its all. We too, as a living sacrifice, give our all, give our life. Which also says that we were a peculiar people. The old King James says that we're a peculiar people. And you might think, well, that's a little odd. It doesn't mean strange. Or does it mean odd, like we would often think of peculiar today? But what it's saying is we are his own possession, a worshiping people who are living our lives as a sacrifice to the one who saved us. For a moment, let's just pause and go through the text a little bit more and, and consider the redemption of this woman, how Jesus sought her out, to worship him and how he led her to an understanding of the reality of sin and his identity as a savior. And then we'll see, it gives us understanding of what it was that he was offering to this gal and to us. How did Jesus help her to see her sin and discover her identity? Let's look back at our text. We'll start in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We see the culture coming out already. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, she's still not on the same page. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? What's the answer, church, to that question? Yes, a resounding yes. He is. He's much greater than the patriarch Jacob. He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said, Go call your husband. And he begins to show her her sin, and, and, and come here. And the woman answered, I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, you're right, you don't. You have five. You've had five. And the one who you're, is now you're, you're living with is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said, and he re- she began to recognize who he was. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I perceive that you are a prophet. What caused her to see her sin and see his identity or who he was? I think it started, he, had to, he caused her to remove focus from the culture that she was living in. What did the culture tell this, this lady? And sometimes it's easy to miss, but noon is not the time to go get water. 
You go in the early part of the day or the later part of the day when it's cooler. Many commentators feel like she was going there because of her past. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it wasn't customary to go at that time. It wasn't customary, as we saw in the text, for men to talk to women in that culture. It wasn't customary that Jews talked to Samaria. They just didn't do that. And we see all through this that her focus was on the temporary things and not eternal things. We see here Jesus was tired. We see his, his, the fact that he was 100% man. But at the same time, we see his deity and how he's offering to her spiritual transformation. But he helps her see her sin and her need for that trans- transformation by saying, go find your husband. The conversation wasn't long. But it caused her to recognize her sin and to see him as the Messiah. And I believe, and I think as we go through the text some more, you'll see too that there was a real transformation here with this lady, that she indeed did accept him and was saved. And she, and I want us to see this truth as well, that living water is the foundational change that provides the heartbeat for your worship and my worship. Living water is the foundational change that provides the heartbeat for our worship. Don't miss what's being said here. This took place at Jacob's well. Jacob's well was something special. It was a deep well. Many think it was over 100 feet deep that it was fed um, by a spring. Don't miss that analogy that it, it, didn't, it didn't run dry. Jacob was the patriarch whose name was changed to Israel, whose sons were the 12 tribes. Don't miss that. As I was thinking about the comparison between the physical and the spiritual, we often hear as it relates to physical water. Water is life to us. We need it. We have to have it. So I who am not a very good scientist, many of you would understand this far better than I, ask the question, why is water life? Why is it life? And I got an answer that I didn't understand, so I then Googled, give me a simple answer to why water is life. So I'm going to read this, because I think it helps us compare to the living water, but, um, and then if you understand it better than me, you can try to explain it to me, or you can just give up after the service and But living, this is what the answer I came up, simple one. Living organisms need water because it plays a vital role role in the reactions taking place within within the organism's cell and body. Water acts as a universal solvent, providing a medium for the chemical reactions to occur. Substance are also transported from one part of the body to the other in a dissolved state. Everybody's got that, right? That's why water is life. Some of you are shaking your head, and I really believe you're going, yeah, that's easy stuff, Pastor Jim. I'm not a scientist, okay? Compare that to the water that's being offered to this gal. Remember the perspective as he uses this analogy of water. They lived in a very dry or arid region. We here in Michigan, as I understand it, we have one-fifth of the earth's fresh water really close to us. We don't think that way. There's water everywhere. 
That was not true then or there. But as water is the foundation for life, so too is Jesus the foundation for redemption. And consequently, from him, living water will become a spring of water welling up in us, in you, to eternal life. Out of him flows our heartbeat for worship. Don't miss it. Out of him flows our heartbeat for worship. So continue to move through the passage. We've seen her sin and how he helped her recognize her sin and come to the the, the knowledge that he was indeed, she said, a prophet. She'll say Messiah later on, but she, well, he was the Messiah. It's interesting how she quickly moves from there to this discussion about worship. And specifically, she asks a question about the place of worship. And Jesus replies by saying this, God has defined what is an acceptable and unacceptable worship. God has defined what is acceptable and unacceptable worship. Let's look at the text so that you see it as well. Our fathers, John 4 and verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Your worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, talking about his impending uh, death, and then resurrection, burial, and then resurrection, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. God is spirit, the text says. Worship must be done in spirit and truth. He was to be worshipped in spirit and truth. Well, how do we define spirit and truth? How do we define that? That's here. Worship flows out of the heart while remaining consistent with how God revealed himself in Scripture. That's the first part. That's spirit. Worship flows out of the heart, while at the same time remaining consistent with God, how God revealed himself in Scripture. It's what's in our definition. It's that first part. Read it with me. Worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that he is. The Spirit is the inside of us. It's not the outside. It's from the innermost part of the person. It's that immaterial part of us. Or as in our definition says, it's all that we are. So I thought about how to explain this and help us to see how worship takes place in the life of a believer. I said, well, how do people worship on a regular basis in spirit around Berean? And it's not easy. It's not hard. It's not, it's not easy. It's not hard to find examples of how you worship the Lord here. 
Many of you teach Sunday school. I surely appreciate you, whether it's with our kids or with our adults. And I know what it means to prepare for a Sunday school class, class week in and week out for months and oftentimes years. It takes a lot of work and a lot of responsibility. And I know that you do that as an act of worship to the Lord. Some of you, during the week, I see you here frequently. I see you here an awful lot. Now, I don't want to say that I see you too much, because that wouldn't be good. Um, but you're here a lot. Why are you here a lot? Because you care about what's going on in the church, and you're involved greatly in ministry, and those are acts of worship. Sometimes I hear and see you having difficult conversation with others. That's an act of worship. Or your giving, as we mentioned earlier in our service, or children's teachers who come in each week knowing that they have a child that's hard to help. Or our deacons as they meet monthly and stay here late into the night oftentimes for their meetings. This is all worshiping the Lord. It's worshiping the Lord in spirit from the heart. The second part of his prescription for worship was truth. We need to combine that with he is spirit. But truth simply means it's consistent with how God revealed himself in scripture, how he described himself to us. We need to think about that for a second. How did God describe himself in scripture? Well, first thing that came to my mind was he's the self-existent one. None of us can say that. He's self-existent. He existed all on his own. He's always been. He is now and he always will be. He's self-existent. He's invisible. He's eternal. We have a hard time processing what forever and ever means. He is one God, yet he's manifested himself in three distinct persons. The Trinity. Wrap your mind around it. It's hard to grasp. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He knows all. He's everywhere. And he's all powerful. It's oftentimes when we really consider how he's revealed to us, it's hard to describe him. He's indescribable. He's the creator. But yet the sustainer of all that is. How big is our God, but how small is our comprehension? And really how small is our understanding? Which leads us to a conversation of worship that at the center of our worship must be a realization that there is no one, there is no one that compares to our God. In the book of Timothy, it said this, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, talking about how he revealed himself the most perfect way through his son. But in these last days when he was spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed to be heir of all things, through him also he created the world. You see, we are to be a people whose life is to be a story of worship. That's what our life is to be. When Karen and I by the way, I'm in no means exalting our own thoughts, but when Karen and I got married, we began to plan our service at our wedding. 
We had a song. We wanted to have a song sang there. I didn't sing it. She didn't sing it, but we had somebody sing it. And there was a song that was called, We Are an Offering. And we, we meant it and as we came together that we wanted our lives to be an offering to him. And the song goes like this. We lift our voices. We lift our hands. We lift our lives up to you. We are an offering. Lord, use our voices. Lord, use our hands. Lord, use our lives. They are yours. We're an offering. All that we have, all that we are, all that we ever hope to be, we give to you. We give to you. Notice that when worship consumes the life of the redeemed, we see a glimpse in the response that follows. Let me show you what I mean. Look back at the text and let's read a little bit more. We're in John chapter 4 and verse 27, but it says this. Toward the end of the story, it says, just then his disciples came back. And I want to suggest to you this was not a coincidence just then. All right, they came back at the exact moment that a sovereign God chose for them to come back. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. We're going to come back and talk about that just briefly. And went into a town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. He's talking spiritual, but the disciples begin to say, has anyone given him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white and white for harvest. As a way of application today, I just want to take some simple application out of this last portion of our passage. And I think this is, this is true, that a worshiping people will see very authentic results. There, there, there's results for that. And I want to use this as a way of application. A worshiping people will see very authentic results. You notice, and I underlined it there, that she left her jar. It's interesting that that point is brought out. Um, I think it gives some authenticity to the fact that John was indeed there and saw this taking place, but she left her jar. Um, doesn't say really why she left her jar. Maybe she was in a hurry to go talk to the town. Maybe it was empty and she just didn't want to take it back to the town. Maybe it was full and she wanted to leave it for Jesus. It doesn't really say. But one thing I think we can say for certain is that her focus shifted. And as we are a worship people, our focus will shift as well. And this is application or the object of our focus ought to be our life's focus is who? Jesus. It's all about him. Our life's focus is all about Jesus. Second thing I want you to see is our God will be glorified. Our God will be glorified. Did you notice what the lady did as we read? She immediately left, and what did she do? She went to town, 
And she magnified his person and his nature and what he did with her and how he talked with her. And, he, and he, she said to the, the townspeople, he told me all that I did. Now, did he really tell her all that he did? No, but he made himself come alive to her. She saw him as a prophet, as a Messiah. He revealed his complete knowledge of her. This is the application. In all that we do, our focus is about him and his glory. In all that we do, our focus is his glory. There's a third application I want you to see that as we are worshiping people, the results that we see, the church will be changing into his own image. The church will be changing into his own image. Did you catch the conversation that the disciples were having? He says, my food is about doing the will of the Father. Their thought was, did someone give him food? He said, I had food to eat, but you don't know about it. You see, his sustenance sustenance was to carry out the will of the Father. We see that consistently through the life of Christ. That's what it was, that's what he was about. He found great joy, great sustenance in sharing the good news. Live in a way, live in a way as he did that carries out the will of God in your life. He pointed them from the temporal, the food, and said, hey, look out into the fields. They're white unto harvest. He said, see the eternal. See the eternal fields. They're ready. They're ripe. They're ready to be picked. Our lives, here's the third application, our lives are a worship service. We don't just come to a worship service, but our lives are a worship service. The fourth thing that I would like you to see is that the community will see the impact of the gospel in us. The community will see the impact of the gospel in us. We didn't read this far in the text, but if your Bibles are open and you want to glance at verse 39, see what it says. It says, many believed because of the testimony of this lady. Or you could say many believed because of the worship of this lady People, here's the application, people make, take notice of authenticity. And I'd love to give you some examples this morning of, of how I've seen that in my life, but, but just know this, and I think it's easy for us to understand. Authentic people make differences, and people notice. People notice. We are called out, the church, the called out ones, we are called out to be worshiping people. I've tweaked our definition a little bit, but I want you to read it. I made it a little bit more for us. Read it with me. Worshiping with all that we are while reacting rightly to all that he is. Worshiping with all that we are while reacting rightly to all that he is. May our hearts always see, as we read in the psalmist, that his love is better than life. His love is better than life. Therefore, we should praise him with all that we are. Let me pray, and then we will dismiss. Father, we do, we do call out to you, the one and only God. 
Father, we are amazed just to be in your presence this morning. We are amazed at the fact that you would um, send your son that we might have eternal lives. Father, I thank you for a church that loves you and as there's a few examples that we looked at this morning, is willing to give of themselves completely to you. I thank you for a church that does that. Father, I pray that um, you would bring it to mind often that our, wives, our lives are indeed a worship service and that we would live each day, each moment, the, the, the rest of our time to bring glory and honor to your son. And this is his name I pray. Amen.